Hello, and welcome to Midnight Mosey. I am Marianne M. Wells, and this is my podcast. Midnight Mosey brings a little bit of the magic and flavor of the American Southwest, legends of the supernatural, um, sometimes some history-inspired mini-dramas, and occasionally even some conversations about sci-fi and fantasy. The idea is to take this opportunity to share with you the background of some of my fiction writing. And to start out, for this first series in the podcast, I want to talk a little bit about a particular piece of history in Amarillo, Texas, and the Texas Panhandle. Amarillo is where I live. It's a very unique place. In fact, the Texas Panhandle is, well, there's nowhere else on in the world quite like it. It's definitely special. When I graduated from law school, some of my classmates were asking me, what are you thinking? How did you end up with a plan to move to Amarillo? Well, I didn't end up here. I consciously chose to come back here, and I had a lot of good reasons. It's a unique place, and I happen to like a lot of the things that make it unique. And those things do influence my writing. One of my book series is called The Undead Bar Association, and the third book in the series is actually set in the Texas Panhandle. The fourth book in the series, the writing and editing is in process, but it's going to take a historic look at some of the events that helped form the Texas Panhandle as it is today. So there's a very heavy influence in my fiction that comes from the facts in this part of the world. So let's go ahead and just take a little casual walk through a piece of panhandle history. The inspiration for the organization of this first little podcast series is an old article from True West magazine back in 2015. They ranked Amarillo as the number four top western town in the United States. And one of the reasons they gave was our Old West history and culture. That's a really interesting thing to say that we're one of the top 10 Western towns in the United States. On the surface, there are some things about Amarillo that would make it seem like a good fit to put us on that list. If you go through the city, you're going to see statues of quarter horses that different artists or businesses have painted and customized. You drive around and you'll see cattle and sometimes even horses out grazing. You don't really see too many people riding horses through or into Amarillo. There are a few little places in town. You, you kind of have to know where to look. But really, the only time recently there's been a huge mass arrival of cowboys and horses into Amarillo it was a few years ago when there was talk about making a movie inspired by the Second Battle of Adobe Walls, and the local casting agency on 6th Street was amazed to find themselves inundated with cowboys on horseback riding straight up to the front door. But that's a rare thing. And there are actually a lot of things going on in Amarillo right now that seems to belie this idea that we're a western town at all. There's something of a forced gentrification in downtown Amarillo that involves erasing 
some of our history. Some evidence of that was when the city decided to get away from the old Amarillo logo as much as they could. See, Amarillo has two L's in it, and the traditional logo was for those two L's to be a pair of cowboy boots. But no, the city wanted a new take, and a few years ago they paid for somebody to design a new logo. That didn't go well. In fact, we had a little bit of a local scandal that those of us who remember it refer to it as Logo-gate. <laughs> Could have caused something of an international incident, actually, the way things went down. But the point is that they did try to give the boots the boot. There's a question now, too, about the American Quarter Horse Association. Right now, we have the museum and the association headquarters in two buildings next to each other. But as of late 2019, there's a lot of talk about the American Quarter Horse Association headquarters leaving Amarillo. They've got some agreements worked out for Fort Worth. So are we actually going to lose some of our Western heritage? It's been the decision, too, again, as part of that gentrification of downtown, to build some new hotels and new buildings instead of doing something to try to bring the existing buildings back online. I'm thinking in particular of the old Herring Hotel, the one with the Bugbee murals in the basement, portraying little slices of Western life, and the restaurant on the second floor, same level as the old ballroom, the restaurant where, when the hotel was opening, the owners sent out a call to all the local ranchers saying, why don't you help us decorate? Why don't you come and leave your mark? And the ranchers came in, and they branded the walls so people eating there could look around and see, burnt into the wood, the history of the local Western heritage. The only people who see those brands now are the people who are able to arrange private tours with the caretaker of the herring. It's part of our heritage that's not widely known and, frankly, could be in danger of disappearing altogether. So where is our Western heritage? Where has it gone? Is it really still with us? Are we, in fact, just seeing today exactly what those pioneers and early settlers to the region thought we would see? Let's talk about it. Let's look at a couple of, uh, well, we'll start with individual stories. I want to talk about Billy Dixon, who was a buffalo hunter who became a rancher. I want to talk a little bit about Charles Goodnight regarded by many as being the father of the Texas Panhandle. And the interesting thing about discussing Goodnight is it transitions us into going from a conversation about people to a conversation about place. And after the people are gone, it's the place they've built that remains. So after Goodnight, I want to talk a little bit about the XIT Ranch and Old Tascosa, and then a little-known place, well, maybe little-known locally, but actually recognized nationally, a place called Alabates, which has an unusual tie-in to this idea of cowboys and our Western heritage. Billy Dixon, as I mentioned, was a buffalo hunter who became a rancher and really one of the early settlers of 
the Texas Panhandle region. But to understand a man like Billy Dixon, we need to talk first about the era he lived in. In fact, to really understand why this area hadn't been settled before, and then why it was settled so quickly, we need to talk about the economy in the U.S. and a few little events that happened all at once. The focus here is on some events in the Reconstruction era, the era that took place towards the end of the Civil War, or the war between the states, as some people in the South refer to it as, and going on for just about a little over a decade after. So we're talking about 1863 to about 1877. For some parts of the country, this was an incredible time of growth and prosperity initially. I mean, this is when you had the expansion of the railroads and, you know, increasing industrialization and more manufacturing facilities coming online. But there were these moments and big events that really impacted the U.S., the U.S. economy, and by way of our economy, the world economy. Let's look first at October of 1871. Remember the story of Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicking over the lantern in the barn and starting the Great Chicago Fire? Well, the story of how the fire really got started, maybe we'll talk about that another time. But our point here is most of Chicago burnt to the ground in October of 1871. We're talking about a major U.S. city. So people have lost their businesses and they've lost their homes. Chicago's trying to recover, but just about a year later, the city of Boston suffers from a huge fire. Not as severe as Chicago when you calculate the total property damage, but still another large American city where people lose their homes and businesses. Just think for a minute, if something like that happened today, what the economic impact would be. And what made the Boston fire probably worse than it necessarily should have been was that about the same time, there was an equine influenza epidemic started in Canada in September of 1872 and spread into the United States. All the horses in the U.S. got the flu. You can think of it that way. In some parts of the country, up to 10% of the horses who caught the flu actually died. Here was the impact, though, in the cities. We're talking about the main form of transportation. Imagine if all of a sudden there's no gasoline for cars. There's no diesel to run any trucks. Imagine if there was suddenly no food in your grocery store because there was no way to get it from the docks or the farms to your grocery store. Then imagine if a fire breaks out in your community and there's no way to get water to your location to put out the fire because there are no fire trucks that can run because there's no fuel. Well, that's what was going on when the fire broke out in Boston. They couldn't even get the fire wagons to the fires because they had sick horses on their hands. But this brings us up to the year 1873. And in 1873, there was a worldwide great financial panic. It actually triggered the start of a four-year depression. The Great Financial Panic started with a stock market crash in Europe, but the problems quickly spread to the United States, 
impacting everything. And there were issues with railroad stocks, but it also impacted commodities like beef prices. We'll come back to that fact in a later episode when we're talking about Charles Goodnight. Along with this depression, there was an increase in unemployment worldwide. There was an increase in unemployment in the United States. But on top of that, people from Europe started immigrating more and more to the United States, hoping to find more economic prosperity here. So you have a country that's trying to rebuild itself from a civil war. Two of its major U.S. cities have burned to the ground. The major transportation source has been ill. And the economy has slipped into a depression with increased unemployment. There's a problem. You've got people who want to work and make money, and you don't have jobs or opportunities or a place for them. When you've got a situation like that, you're going to start looking at the map and saying, where can these people go? And by chance, there was one particular place left in the United States. There was a giant blank spot left on the map. Place known by explorers by people in the government and in the U.S. Army as the wilderness. The wilderness existed for a few reasons. Some of them had to do with treaties. Some of them had to do with geography. The wilderness was a place encompassing northern Texas, part of what's now Oklahoma, and up a little bit into present-day Kansas. The wilderness was a place where there was no settlement by people of European descent. And it's an interesting thing to say, because just to the west of the wilderness, in New Mexico, there was settlement. There was settlement in Santa Fe. People were moving into Santa Fe from the north, using the Santa Fe Trail. They were coming up from the south by the Camino Real. But they wouldn't cross over into the wilderness to their east. And people weren't coming down from the Kansas area, well, at least they really weren't supposed to, in part because of the Medicine Lodge Treaty between the U.S. government and some of the Native American tribes. The Arkansas River was supposed to be one of the borders that had been recognized and laid out in that treaty. White settlers were not supposed to go south of the Arkansas River. And the Arkansas River, well, if you're trying to figure out the geography, basically the Arkansas River runs through Dodge City. So you can't go south of Dodge City, Kansas. As far as what the eastern border was, the eastern border was a line of U.S. forts. Actually more of a curve if you look at the map. 
beyond those forts to the west of them was just pure danger. Mind you, some people did try. They went out onto this great sweeping plateau of land raised above the surrounding area known as the Cap Rock, known by some as the Llano Estacado, and very quickly known to those early pioneers as the Staked Plains. Staked Plains because they say that the paths, the roads, the would-be settlements were littered with the stakes put down as markers to the dead, those who were so bold as to try and enter this vast wilderness. Well, the wilderness may seem like a dangerous place, but all of a sudden when your economy is turned on you and you've got people looking for work and places to live, it doesn't seem so much like a wilderness. It starts to seem like an opportunity. We'll talk about that possibly in another series. If you're curious about that, let me know, and I'll do a series on the Red River Indian War. I won't go into detail about those battles today. Well, maybe just one, the one Billy Dixon fought in. But just know that this part of the country wasn't even settled in the 1870s. But for somebody like Billy Dixon, who'd known since he was a child that he wanted adventure, that he wanted to fight Indians, that he wanted to see the open places and the wild frontier. This wilderness was the place of his dreams. Billy Dixon was born on September 25, 1850. He was the oldest of three children, but he very quickly became an orphan. His mother died when he was young. His father died when he was 12. Youngest sibling passed away. So it was Billy and his sister. They were sent to live with their uncle, but within a year, his sister became ill and died too. Billy didn't see the point of staying with his uncle anymore, didn't see the point of burdening him, and he knew he wanted adventure. So at the age of about 14, in the year 1863, so put that in your mind as far as what was going on with the Civil War, Billy and a friend just ran away from home. They took off and started heading west. In Missouri, they actually witnessed a great Civil War battle, and Billy reported later in his biography, as dictated to his wife, that if he'd only been older, he would have enlisted. Instead, he found a job, being hired to watch stock, and help deliver supplies to some of the army forts in the West. Here he was, a very young man, but he started to get some of the experience that he wanted, the experience of an adventurer. There were some skirmishes with Indians, and he started to make and save up a little bit of money. All right, he didn't save all of it. He wanted to show a little bit of flash. He bought himself a sombrero, a Colt revolver, a butcher knife, a belt, and a whip. That sombrero would be with him for quite a while. That Colt revolver, well, he was going to get quite good with that. In fact, he became very adept at handling most firearms of the times. And that butcher knife, one day that was going to help save his life. By the age of 18, Billy had become a buffalo hunter. Buffaloes were very valuable to a lot of people. To the Native Americans living out on the plains, out on the Cap Rock, 
The buffalo was valuable for everything. The buffalo was a part of everything they did in their lives, and they used all parts of the buffalo. Now, for the buffalo hunters, they're valuable a little bit for the bones. You can make fertilizer out of that. But the real prize was a buffalo hide. You see, the leather could be sold to industrialists back in the Northeast to make machine belts for all those new factories that were being built. Sure, they could be turned into fashionable buffalo robes, too. But it was really that industrial expansion that was fueling the need and the desire for the hides. You can make good money if you were willing to take the chance. If you were willing to take on the danger. Because if you wanted those buffalo, well, the Native Americans wanted them, too. And they knew the land and the territory a lot better than you did. For somebody like Billy, who came out west hoping for adventure, that didn't sound like a threatening danger. That sounded like an adventure. And he was ready. In 1872, he was up in Dodge City, finding people to work with, finding out who the buyers for the hides were going to be. Dodge City, Kansas, in 1872, was the terminus of the Santa Fe Railroad. There were no railroads at that time running into the wilderness. There were no railroads in northern Texas. Oh, no. But there was that track that ran into Dodge City and would run back to the northeast with the hides you could sell. In Billy's biography, written by his wife, there's a lot of talk about what Dodge City was like in the early days. It was a surprise to him and the other early buffalo hunters that it turned into the place it did. When Billy was there, there was all of five buildings, and he could name every single one. But such was the need, the desire for buffalo hides, that that city quickly grew. The way Billy described it, there was money to be made, and there was always, in Dodge City, money flowing. With everybody going after the buffalo, the Native Americans were becoming increasingly hostile. That's from Billy and the other buffalo hunters' point of view. The U.S. Army and the colonels in the area, they had their own opinion. In particular, a Colonel Mackenzie. But we'll leave that story for another time. The only point to be made about that right now is that Colonel Mackenzie was waiting for something to happen. He'd spoken to the generals about how he really wanted to battle the Indians, and he felt like because of some of the reservation rules and some of the treaties, his hands were tied. I want that fight, he would say. And the generals said, no, there has to be some real reason. There has to be some real provocation before we'll let the U.S. Army start an all-out campaign against the Comanches, the Kaiba, the Cheyenne, and the other natives in this area. Eventually, they got that provocation. And the day it came, Billy Dixon was there. Remember the Arkansas River? It was the deadline. The line where you weren't supposed to go south. Respect the line. And it was even reputedly patrolled. Natives were not supposed to go north of the line. Buffalo hunters and white settlers should not be going south of the line. And the U.S. Army would patrol to make sure everybody followed the rules. Well, according to Billy, they really didn't patrol that hard. And so he and some other buffalo hunters went south of the Arkansas River 
just to see what they could find. They had some close calls. They had some skirmishes with the Comanches and the Kiowa. But they had some good hunts. Good enough, in fact, that in 1873, they started scouting for a good summer hunting site. And eventually they thought they found one, not too far from the Canadian River. And they decided to set up a base, somewhere where they could collect the hides for mass transport, somewhere where maybe they could set up a, a small saloon and a general store. And they picked a site called Adobe Walls. There was something of a mystery about Adobe Walls. The remains of old buildings were there, but nobody seemed to really know who'd built them. Some people believe that it was actually some of the Pueblo Indians who'd started a settlement there and then abandoned it to move to New Mexico territory. Others said that it had been U.S. Army colonel back in the 1850s or 1860s. But when Billy and some of the others went out there scouting the area, all they saw were the remains of the walls. And there were the stories of a great battle that had happened on that site, what was called then the Battle of Adobe Walls, with Kit Carson leading the charge against the Indians during the Civil War. Now we refer to that as the First Battle of Adobe Walls. It certainly was not the last. Summer of 1874 came, and Billy and a lot of the others were actively hunting the area that they had scouted, and sure enough, a small settlement had been set up at Adobe Walls. Here's the setup of that little settlement, according to the life of Billy Dixon. All the buildings at Adobe Walls faced to the east, the main one standing in a row. On the south was the store of Rath and Wright, with a great pile of buffalo hides at the rear. Then came Henry Hand Saloon, and fifty yards or so north of the latter, was a store of Myers and Leonard, the building forming the northeast corner of the big picket stockade. In the southwest corner of the stockade was a mess house, and between the mess house and the store was a well. The blacksmith shop was located just north of Hanray Han's saloon. The walls of the main buildings were all about two feet thick. Some doors looked west, others looked to the east. You get the idea, it's a pretty small little settlement. Still, for the buffalo hunters, in 1874, it started to sound like a refuge. One by one, the individual buffalo hunters, working in teams with their skinners, were being attacked by the Native Americans. And survivors would ride off and try to find the other hunters and warn them they are hostiles in the area. Well, after hearing two reports, Billy decided, that's it, we're done. We're heading for Adobe Walls will be safer there. And so he and his Skinner decided that they would actually try to go across a creek that had actually been swollen by the recent rains. It was a risky choice and didn't go too well. Oh, the people made it all right. Billy's dog made it all right, but they lost the mules. Billy lost his gun. They made it, though, through the water and then finished out on foot hurrying to Adobe Walls, June 26, 1874. Billy gets to Adobe Walls, and first, of course, he's going to see who else is there. Second, he goes and buys himself a new gun, a new sharps. Buys some ammunition for it, too. That makes a little bit of a mistake. He remembers to 
carry the gun with him, but then forgets about the ammunition, something he regretted later. He has the gun with him and goes into the saloon, talks with the other buffalo hunters, including one, if you know your Old West history, another name you might recognize, Bat Masterson. And they're just chatting, Billy figuring they'll probably all end up bunking outside. But then they get reports that there are actually Indians nearby. And a decision's made. Maybe they'll just all stay inside the saloon for tonight. Except for a few, notably the Shadler brothers, who decide that they're actually going to sleep in their wagon outside. Well, everybody who decides to stay inside camps out. In the early morning hours, something happened. And there's debate, if you read different first-hand accounts, about exactly what it was. But a sharp noise woke up everybody inside the saloon. Now, according to Billy, there was a support post inside the building that cracked. Others say they think the saloon owner actually fired his pistol into the air deliberately to wake everybody up. Well, whether it was a deliberate act or an accident, it was certainly a fortunate thing that everybody woke up because it was just a few minutes later that the Indians decided to attack. Next time on Midnight Mosey. Everyone in the saloon is wide awake and just in time. We'll talk about the Second Battle of Adobe Walls. And we'll take a look at one of the most unique battles in the Red River Indian War, the Battle of Buffalo Wallow. Let's go.